Good afternoon or good morning as the case may be wherever you are joining us from. Uh, welcome to another United States Studies Center webinar. I'm Simon Jackman. I'm the CEO of the US Studies Center here at the University of Sydney, Professor of Political Science uh, here at the university as well. And the University of Sydney, where the US Studies Center is located, stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Uh, today, our topic uh, is, is, about, is geoeconomics. Now, that's a word that those of us who uh, study political science, international relations, international economics, um, strategic affairs more broadly, uh, is very much part of our vernacular. Um, but is a phrase that is, has become increasingly uh, current uh, in, in, in more lay and popular understandings of, uh, of, of, of geostrategic circumstances more broadly around the globe uh, in, in, in recent years. Um, the, the, in particular, um, um, this has started to emerge as a, as a real fault point, as a, as a real fault line. Uh, in, in um, certainly Australia's relationship with China, perhaps mo most prominently, but of course the United States own relationship with China and indeed uh, the relationships of many other countries uh, with, with China uh, and, and other nations uh, for that as well. But more broadly, taking those proper nouns, Australia and China, away for a moment, the term refers to uh, the, the, the way that tools that are prominently thought to belong in, in the basket of commerce and economics um, both uh, the, the flow of capital in, in, in private exchange, but also the things that governments do to perhaps slow down uh, the flow of capital and, and trade. Um, the way that those tools have, have been deployed by nation states in projecting power and influence, that's probably um, a bit of a loose, uh, but I hope helpful uh, definition of what it is we mean when we refer to geoeconomics. And of course, immediately we say, well, that's hardly new, and that's right, um, but what is new is the way that those tools have come back to be quite prominent in the international system uh, in, in, in recent years in particular. And of course, that gets us to today's uh, webinar um, because that set of concerns about the way uh, economic tools are now being deployed by nation states is very much part of the US-Australia Alliance agenda uh, as it turns 70 uh, this year, coincidentally. Part of what we here at the US Study Center um, have drawn a big, um, uh, try to draw focus on um, the way that the US-Australia Alliance agenda is really broadening to take in um, a, a very much a, a geoeconomic component at, at, at this stage in its, in its evolution. Um, but that raises all sorts of questions. Um, where and how um, do, does an, a geoeconomic agenda fit in the traditional uh, US-Australia Alliance agenda, what does a framework uh, for cooperation between Australia and the US on geoeconomic matters look like institutionally, operationally? How do you put some flesh on the bones, as it were, of a shared set of concerns that both countries have? How do you actually translate that into, into, into policy that actually moves the needle, as we say, uh, in the region and in particular for Australia? So the US Study Center um, has um, commissioned some work on this um, from, from uh, three noted experts in the field. Um, uh, first of all, um, uh, Zach Cooper, who's at the American Enterprise Institute, um, uh, Darren Lim, um, who's at ANU, 
um, at least nominally, um, is actually um, is, is far away from ANU right now, but is joining us um, as what, probably a very early time of the day uh, uh, for Darren. Uh, and, and Ashley Fang, who's um, a former research associate um, at the Center for New American Security. Uh, the study center um, commissioned uh, a, a report from them that's um, live on our website, um, Trust and Diversify is its title, Trust and Diversify, a Geoeconomic Strategy for the Australia-US Alliance. And to join them, to lead them in conversation today, we're, we're very fortunate to have a colleague from our sister center, the Perth US Asia Center, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. Jeff, in, in, in a very short time frame, reflecting the urgency with which this topic has come on, Jeff has, has emerged as one of Australia's leading voices um, in, this, in this topic quite broadly, uh, has written a number of very widely read, very influential reports on, first of all, on a very specific element of this, um, uh, critical materials and their role in, in power projection and indeed in, in alliance context as well. And then, and then most recently, a report surveying um, sort of risks and opportunities uh, to Australia broadly um, uh, through that uh, geoeconomics uh, lens that I was referring to earlier. And so Jeff is perhaps uniquely well positioned uh, to lead uh, Zach, Darren and Ashley in conversation today. And, and with that, um, it's over to you, Jeff, who's going to run the session uh, from here on in. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, it's your show now, Jeff, thanks. Thank you, Simon, and thanks very much for the kind words. Um, uh, look, it's really my pleasure to be able to, to chair this session, introducing this you know, excellent new report about geoeconomics and the Australia-US uh, alliance and relationship from uh, the United States Study Centre. Um, just to provide some context, um, the unfortunate reality is geoeconomic conflict has become a fact of life in the 21st century. Um, as great power competition has come back, um, we've seen governments often go towards using the econ economic levers and the economic toolkit to prosecute some of their rivalries and contests. Um, I think we'd all be aware that there's been trade wars, investment races, great contests over multilateral institutions. Um, and what we find is that Australia has actually been on, to some degree, the pointy end of this experience over the last 18 months. Um, since May last year, the Australian government was subject to a campaign of trade coercion by the Chinese government that targeted 14 different Australian export industries with a combined value of affected exports of 70 billion Australian dollars. Now, the net macroeconomic effect on Australia has been less because often we found a way to sell those products to other countries in, in lieu of a Chinese market. Um, but the net cost to Australia is still measured in the billions, according to Treasury estimates. Um, now, Australia is not the first country that's been on the receiving end of Chinese trade coercion, but it has been the largest. And therefore, this experience of Australia's trade experience with China over the last 18 months has actually proven to become a bit of a global test case on not just how medium countries like Australia, but in fact, countries around the world are going to respond to this emerging problem of trade coercion. So in that context, the question then gets asked as to how can countries like Australia activate broader coalitions and their broader diplomatic relationships to respond to this? And in our case, uh, the relationship with the United States, both the formal alliance, but also the equities across that relationship becomes really important. Um, we've seen strong messaging from the US for its support for Australia. 
Um, Indo-Pacific Tsar Kurt Campbell famously said in an op-ed in the Australian newspaper that the US wouldn't leave Australia on the court over these trade issues with China. Um, and at the somewhat fractious Anchorage summit earlier this year, um, Secretary Blinken actually made the comment that China needed to cease its campaign of trade coercion against like-minded countries with, of the US if that China and the US were to have a normal economic relationship going forwards. Um, so the messaging is there, but then the question becomes, well, how do we activate that uh, discursive and diplomatic agenda into concrete policy actions that Australia and the US can do individually, together, and also in the broader coalitions of which we're jointly a part? This is where um, our report comes in. Um, and this is an excellent study in what some of the practical ideas for taking that joint agenda forward could be. Um, we'll start the discussion with um, Zach Cooper, who will provide a, a short slide pack and overview of the report and the recommendations. And then we'll go to some discussion uh, Q&A regarding unpacking some of the real themes and issues that we're digesting here. Um, so with that, I'll hand it over to you, Zach, to start our discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's so wonderful to get to chat with you about this. You've done so much wonderful work in this area. So really, really appreciate you hosting and, and looking forward to the discussion later. And also thank you to the U.S. Studies Center for sponsoring this work. I think Darren, Ashley, and I are very thankful for the opportunity to work together. Um, so what I want to do is, is do a quick introduction to the report by walking you through some slides that just describe uh, what we've written, and, and you can go on the website and see it, um, but I'll just give you a five-minute overview for those of you that haven't had a chance to look. As Simon said, the, the report is called Trust and Diversify, and it proposes a geoeconomic strategy for the Australia-US alliance. Now, um, we talk about this as a new alliance mission. For many years, we've all said the greatest challenge to the US and Australia from an alliance standpoint was often on the military side, but I think we're seeing that the kind of economic pressure that Jeff and Simon talked about is increasingly perhaps the biggest challenge for the alliance today. And this is something that US leaders have acknowledged. Uh, and just as Jeff said, uh, Tony Blinken, the US Secretary of State said recently that the United States would not leave Australia alone on the pitch uh, or the field in the face of economic coercion by China. But what we haven't seen yet is specific action in that regard. And so we talk about two different geoeconomic concerns that have to be dealt with. The first is leverage and leverage arises because voluntary economic transactions create mutual benefits. And those of course represent a source of potential power. And one thing that we'll talk about a little bit in the report and, and here tonight or this morning is uh, that these can both be used in the short term or in the long term. So in the short term, leverage leads to economic coercion, potentially. In the long term, it can lead to the accumulation of leverage for future use. And both are concerns, although in different ways. Uh, second, we worry about fragility. And fragility derives from the brittleness of the globalized supply chains that we have today. We've seen this during COVID-19 with some of the difficulty getting medical equipment um, and, and other uh, important goods that are traded globally. And as we've seen in the short term, that kind of fragility can lead to supply chain disruptions. And in the long term, again, it can lead to something very different, which is protectionism. And so those are the four things that we really worry about in the report. The four geoeconomic challenges, as we call them. Economic coercion, influence accumulation, supply chain disruption, and the propagation of protectionism. 
And so what we do in the report is we walk through each of these four in some detail. I, I won't do that now, but I know we'll get into them a little bit more. Um, and what we do is we propose a, a framework for dealing with these four challenges. And that framework, as I said earlier, uh, we call trust and diversify. Let me talk about each of those separately. So trust. The reason trust is so important in, in our view is that we want to maintain an open economic order. That's, that's really important. I know it's very important to Australia. I think we'll have a discussion about how important it is to Americans as well, but it, at least to Ashley and I, I will promise that it is, it is quite important to us. Um, but the reality is that certain trade and investment transactions are just going to have to be based on reliable security and political relationships. And uh, so trust is going to be a key factor. And the other key factor here is diversification. And the reason here is that the risks from untrusted economic partners are often going to be difficult to manage and they're not going to be simply managed by closing off trade. I know some people talk about that, but total decoupling, I think is not something that anyone is really, is really discussing seriously. Instead, what we're going to see is some, some kind of balance. And exactly what that balance looks like is going to determine the kinds of leverage that we see in the system. And so it's really going to be important to diversify economic partners so that we don't have too much dependence on any single source, especially if that is an untrusted source. And so how do we do these two things? In the report, we walk through five recommendations and I'll, I'll just mention each of them briefly. Um, so this is the first that we suggest to expand Osman to address geoeconomics. And I think most of you probably know what Osman is, but uh, just as a reminder, this is the, the meeting, which I, I think was just sort of announced in the last few hours in Australia, um, that we now know that uh, we're going to have a meeting, it looks like uh, at the end of next week in Washington uh, with the ministers of defense and foreign affairs and trade, along with the secretary of state and the secretary of defense on the American side. And that meeting is usually, of course, a two plus two format. Um, and unfortunately, that two plus two, in our view, is a bit too narrow to really incorporate geoeconomics. And I know Darren will talk more about this, but in just the last few days, we've heard the Australian treasurer talk in uh, very direct terms about the importance of bringing economics into this kind of strategic dialogue. The prime minister has said it as well. And we suggest that one way to do this would be to expand Osman. So it's not just about strategic issues, leaving economics to the side, but actually make it from a two plus two into a three plus three. And we can talk about exactly who the right officials are to have in the room. I think the treasurers are uh, probably the, the most obvious ones, um, but that would be a very important signal that geoeconomics isn't just a sideshow, it's actually increasingly coming to center stage. Second, we suggest establishing a working group on geoeconomics. And of course, this is because you can have all the good Osman meetings you want, but at the end of the day, there has to be some difficult work done at the working level to actually uh, make that kind of high level meeting into something that uh, can actually have results. And so what we suggest is a bilateral working group on geoeconomic cooperation, including both the security and economic bureaucracies. And the first task that we propose would be to agree on the kinds of challenges we face and to share information and assessments about them, especially about key areas of vulnerability. And we hope that this would establish some sort of shared baseline that could then feed into future Osman meetings. Third, 
we suggest developing a supply chain management agenda. And I know in both capitals, there's a huge amount of pressure to act on supply chain concerns. And if we're not careful, I think this can uh, lead to sort of protectionist impulses. And so one thing that we need to do is root this in an alliance framework. Um, we have to make sure that the working group that we have proposed and, and perhaps an expanded Osman as well can provide the institutional uh, knowledge to actually come up with a specific agenda about how our countries can work together on our shared supply chain concerns. Um, if we deal with them separately, we could actually increase rather than decrease vulnerability. All right. Fourth, and, and this is starting to get into some of the more forward-leaning recommendations, and I think realistically some of the recommendations that would take a little bit more time but are incredibly important. Um, we suggest constructing a coercion attribution mechanism. And the reason for this is that I think all of us know, and, and no one here probably is going to dispute that what we've seen from Beijing over the last 18 months or so is a pretty coordinated campaign of, of economic coercion. But the reality is if we wanna start responding to those types of campaigns, we actually have to be able to identify them and have a shared understanding, not just between the United States and Australia, but a much larger group of like-minded countries. And so what we suggest is developing principles and that could lead towards the formation of a multilateral grouping that could identify when economic uh, decisions or incidents have crossed the line from normal competitive frictions into a actual geoeconomic coercive campaign. And then finally, uh, and this is our most forward-leaning recommendation, we suggest exploring cooperative anti-coercion measures. So what this would look like, I think we're, we're gonna have to talk about in some detail, perhaps in the question and answer period. Um, but one sort of option would be specific countermeasures against cases of coercion. Uh, this could include things like actually a counter coercion fund, right? Not to fully offset the losses from coercive actions. I, I think that's unrealistic, but to at least partially limit the damage and to show uh, that uh, allied countries are standing with Australia in this case and demonstrate that kind of political solidarity that is so important and that American leaders have promised. Um, and so these are the five recommendations we have. I'm gonna hand it back to you, Jeff, um, but just the last, the last point I would make is, I think we're now at the, at the point where American leaders have been very clear that they want to stand with Australia in the face of this kind of economic coercion. And I think they're quite serious about it, but we have to figure out how to do that. And the, there's a time crunch coming up, which is we have this Osman meeting in 10 days and there are gonna be a lot of questions asked, I think of whether we can deliver. And so part of what we're trying to do is, is stimulate uh, some, some greater effort uh, on a alliance strategy from, from this standpoint. So Jeff, with that, I'll, I'll hand it back to you and get off of stage. Thanks so much. Excellent. Thanks so much, Zach. Um, that's a really great introduction. And it's really brings me a lot of joy to see uh, this report published in such a timely way just before our, our hastily rescheduled Osmin that's coming up in, a, in just over a week's time. Um, um, what I'd like to do, and there is a Q&A box, I see someone's already jumped in with a question and please anyone from the audience, if you have any suggestions, put them in there and we'll try and work them in the discussion. But just try and tease out what some of the underlying drivers are for some of, the, of your recommendations for this Alliance Agenda on Geoeconomics, um, but also what the landing points are going to look like, particularly in view of looking at our attendee list here, I can see a number of policies 
policy uh, people on both sides of the relationship and to think about how, you know, we can actually start folding these, these principles into the, the daily policy we make. The first one I want to ask is actually picks up on your di the diversify and diversity part of, of your trust and diversity title. And this is about how do we do that? Um, I think, you know, Australians would be aware and Americans may well know that a lot of Australia's trade relationships are very deep but narrow, reliant on often a single market for a significant number of our exports. And that's a natural role of international open market-based exchanges that you often trade with the, with the partner that pays the highest price. Um, so when we ask about building in more diversity, um, reflecting a security premium, right? There is a greater geopolitical risk on trade than we had in the past. So you want your eggs in a greater number of baskets due to that risk. We are asking a question about a, a different role for government in how international economic relationships, whether they're trade or investment or technology are actually governed. Um, this isn't going to happen with a free, completely free market setting where the international marketplace decides who trades what to whom. So my, my first question is, what's the way conceptually that countries like Australia and the US, which are traditionally liberal open market economies, um, and typically government doesn't get involved in who businesses trade with and on what terms, um, how do we fold that into the way, if we, we have this discussion, the, the way we can actually help shape and augment that diversification agenda? What can government do to uh, build that in in a greater degree than we presently have? Um, might open that up, particularly uh, to uh, Darren and Ashley to join the conversation at this point. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, it's great to be here. You ask, you know, maybe the most difficult question up front, but it's not just a difficult policy question. It's a difficult theoretical question. Um, and as the full-time academic uh, in the group, it's one that has preoccupied me um, for many hours over, over recent months, um, because this is a domain with really stark trade-offs. You know, the reason we're having this conversation is that economic relationships are increasingly generating security consequences and, and you know, they're tools of power and vectors of vulnerability, as has been discussed. But actions to mitigate you know, those security vulnerabilities and reduce those risks, which would be a good thing in theory, um, can have obviously side effects that are not in you know, anybody's interests. They can lead to economic closure, which can undermine the prosperity benefits of, of free trade. And that also has corrosive impacts on the, the rules-based trading order, which has sustained um, you know, Australia's prosperity as well as the United States for, for so many decades now. So, you know, to, to, to answer your question then, you know, how do you, how should you think about that? The, simple, the, the starting point is to acknowledge the trade-offs up front, right? To be explicit that there are, difficult decisions in whatever direction you go and try to broaden the conversation from, an, from a narrow focus on one aspect of the consequences, you know, just the security concerns or just the economic consequences, but acknowledge them uh, broadly. The second thing that I think is to, is rather than to jump straight into, you know, this is what we should do, it's focus on, on, on the fact that this is a new policy domain. And so learning and, and improving our situational awareness is a great place to start. You know, both economic coercion and supply chain fragility are phenomena that we don't know a lot about yet. They're, they're both fairly young, um, um, at least in the, the con modern context. Um, and that, I think, the lack of knowledge is, is part of the reason that international cooperation has been slow to get off the ground. So I think starting a simple conversation you know, explicitly between the US and Australia through the Alliance framework as our, as our report recommends is a great place to start. And we obviously recommend Osmond as a vehicle for doing that. 
I think the third the, the third thing then is to you know, you're looking to build you know in the in the context of learning build acceptable standards of behavior. You know you want to and we are saying we should start doing that bilaterally and but then look you know pretty quickly hopefully to expand out the coalition of countries who agree on what is appropriate in this area. And I'll note that the EU is already doing this in parallel on their own in the building of a counter coercion instrument. And then you know fourth you know if you're focusing on standards that allows you then to focus on, on bad behavior. Um, and this is our, our argument about the construction of an attribution mechanism to identify coercion. And then only, only once you've done all these things, you've learned about the environment, you've come to an agreement on acceptable standards of behaviour, can you start to take more direct measures, which, as you have implied in your question, can be about trying to build certain economic relationships based on trust, which, of, of course, are going to incur an economic cost, um, but, uh, both in the context of supply chains um, or in terms of diversifying away from coercion. And then longer term, you know, as we mentioned in the, you know, building things like the fund, it should be at least in our minds as possible ways of responding to bad behavior. I think the last thing I'll say, Jeff, is that the process of doing this, given our interest in preserving a rules-based framework, has to be transparent and based on our own sets of clear rules. And so whatever Australia and the US and others are going to do on this, we want to be very upfront about what we're doing, why we're doing, what the trade-offs are, and use that as the basis of cooperation rather than sort of acting unilaterally in an ad hoc manner, which is really only compounding the challenges to the rules-based framework. Thanks very much, Sharon. I'd like to take this opportunity to, to bring Ashley into our discussion now. And Ashley, well, you know, when we're talking about the role of the state here, part of the issue that we're having is a lot of countries have a def very different view of what the role of the state in the economy, both domestically and internationally, is than we might have in the United States or Australia or other Western countries. And, you know, I wouldn't limit this discussion to China, but certainly part of the reason China is able to engage in trade coercion against Australia is it has mechanisms internally in its system that the Chinese government can order power companies to stop buying Australian coal, which is not, is, is not a policy lever that's necessarily available in our systems. Um, I'd just like you to, you know, join in this discussion is what does this mean in terms of different national economic systems that we might have thought as a domestic pol economic policy issue? How does that, those differences in those systems translate into some of these issues in the discussion we're trying to have here? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I think you really hit the nail on the head there in which, you know, China is a state capitalist led model. And so they have a lot of levers that the United States doesn't. And this kind of gets to what Aaron was talking a little bit about before, in which we need to acknowledge in governments and in countries like ours and Australia, in which there is a divide between the between the private sector and the government and the incentives for both are completely different. From the private sector, they are all about profits, chasing the bottom line. And from the government side, it's more of a national security issue. And so some of the research that we have done and that I previously was able to do at CNES, um, there is a disconnect between the private sector and the government that needs to be fixed. I think, especially within DC, because so many different uh, so many different sectors are in DC are geared towards having the government as a client. And so they're much more acclimated to national security issues. But then there's the rest of the country in which they don't understand a lot of these issues. Um, take Silicon Valley, for example, right? Um, a lot of the people out there, you have things like DIU, which is the uh, Defense Innovation Unit. And there are very specific networks that do want to tap, that, that do want to use the government as a client. And so they tap into those networks. But then you have another huge sector of that entire of the entire high tech sector 
which is one of the top priorities that the United States government is trying to protect right now, they aren't as tied in and they don't really understand how some of the regulations that are moving in through DC are going to affect them. So I think a good first step, specifically on the United States side, because I'm not as familiar with how the Australian government runs, is under the Obama administration, you had a special representative to Silicon Valley in which you had somebody who was regularly out there communicating a lot of government priorities and ensuring that you know a lot, some of the companies that were out there, that they understood some of the business risks that they were taking. I think things like that should be continuing. And as well, um, the government also has a lot of private partner roundtables, a lot of times in which they get feedback from the private sector on what is good. Uh, and what's working and what's not working, but that should be a two-way street in which the government is also effectively communicating their regulations. We can't, as, as our report indicates, we can't turn our economies into China's model because that's not what have, has caused our economies to flourish and succeed in the first place, but we have other policy levers that we should definitely be. Excellent. Thanks so much, Ashley. That's it's it's really gets to that question of where do we, in responding to some of these things, get the balance right between the government having a greater, you know, greater involvement, engagement with these commercial issues without, as you say, adopting a state capitalist model that we're kind of trying to respond to here. Um, I'd like to loop to back to Zach with the next question, but certainly bring in um, Darren and Ashley's comments on this too, which is regarding the United States part of this equation. And hopefully, Zach, you could give us a bit of a view from DC on this one. Um, it, it is a reality that a lot of the challenges around geoeconomics more broadly, because this is definitely a China story, but not is it solely a China story, has actually come has been difficulties through the US approach during the Trump administration. Um, I think most of us would know that the Trump administration took a very uh, both protectionist, but also geoeconomic approach to foreign economic relations with Section 232 tariffs and a number of things. Um, and particularly the ongoing issue regarding the appellate body, the appeals court to the World Trade Organization, which is presently in core due to US appointment vetoes. Um, this, is, this is actually a concrete challenge for Australia at the moment because we have launched um, WTO disputes over barley and wine with China, which could potentially get appealed into the void without a functioning appeals court in Geneva. Um, obviously, and Zach, as you mentioned in your comments, there has certainly been very much more reassuring signs coming out of the Biden administration, um, particularly from Blinken and Campbell over the, uh, even before, after the election, before the inauguration. Um, but the question is, where is this going to land? Uh, the US debate on what it's going to do with its trade policy generally or China specifically, you know, remains an open discussion. There are different views in DC, probably different views from different parts of, of the um, administration at the moment. And could you give us some, some insights on where the new administration is going to kind of take these issues after inheriting a very difficult agenda from the Trump administration? Yeah, Jeff, it's, it's so important and, and such a difficult issue and, and maybe the hardest issue for the Biden team um, because it crosses over domestic and international policy and there are deep divisions, I think, within, within the White House even on this issue. I think we have to start by acknowledging that you might think that because Donald Trump constantly attacked trade and you know said tariffs were wonderful and trade wars were great, that you might think that actually um, trade became much less popular in the United States over the last five years. It's not true. If you look at polling data, actually trade became more popular. So the more the, the Trump administration clamped down on trade and it, just as you said, you know, put on supposedly national security tariffs on allies and partners, um, that actually led the American people to like trade more. Unfortunately, what it didn't do is convince leaders in Washington to go ahead with 
pro-trade agenda. So we're now in this strange position where you had a sort of anti-trade president who led to a more pro-trade public here in the United States, but you've got leaders in Washington on both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican, who are sort of stuck in this world where they're not entertaining the idea of, of um, new trade deals, right? And so now you have a Biden team, which is, I think, in a pretty tricky position here. They've talked a lot about a foreign policy for the middle class. I don't think anyone quite understands exactly what that means, um, but, but I think one thing that it means is that they're unlikely to strike trade deals at any point in, in the near future. Um, and, and so we're now in a very difficult position. Trade is absolutely important to the U.S. strategic position in Asia, and yet um, Washington on both sides of the aisle in recent administrations has been quite critical of those trade agreements. And so I think now that the challenge is to try and build back U.S. engagement in the economic order, right? So in the Trump team, this wasn't just that they had some concerns about the order. You know, as one White House official told me about four or five years ago, they were trying to tear that order down. They thought the order was broken. I think the challenge now for the Biden team is to figure out which parts of the order they want to keep and which parts they want to throw overboard. And, you know, I guess from my standpoint, the WTO dispute resolution mechanism would be a pretty important thing to, to keep, right? And that's something the US has a lot of leverage over. Um, so I think there's some pretty obvious things that the United States needs to do. We, we can come back and talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and what's gonna happen there and, and related issues. But I think things like the WTO, which are clearly in the US interest, are, are items that US leaders are gonna have to you know, be pushing over the next few years here if they wanna have leverage to push back against this kind of coercive activity that we're seeing. Mm, thanks. I might take this opportunity, and you've mentioned the TPP to, to go to actually on this one, and particularly some questions that were received before the thing about what's the prospects of the US coming back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement, which is the bridging agreement with the other 11 parties that's presently in force. Um, and look, I'll just to frame this question, I think it's, it's a very interesting one because the TPP is interesting in that it's always been billed as a strategic agreement, not really. It's it's a foreign policy initiative with trade, not a trade policy initiative for the US. And this goes right back to the Obama administration when Tom Denealan said, you know, made that off the cuff remark. It was the the TPP was the equivalent of an additional aircraft carrier group in in the in the Asia Pacific, as we we're calling it at the time. Um, but you know, as as um, Zach mentions, there are tensions between strategic groups that would be really keen to see this as a pillar for US re-engagement on the economic front in the region, uh, are running up against the perennial difficulties of getting anything trade-wise through the Congress, um, particularly with fast track um, not being on the table as it had been for in previous areas. So I should, if you could give us a bit of some, some of your views as to how that could boil down. Sure. Um, I, I think it's a little bit unlikely during this administration that they will, that they will try to rejoin CPTPP. I think instead what you're going to see continue is a trend that kind of started during the Trump administration in which they really pursued minilateral trade agreements. Um, so things like the US-Japan digital trade agreement, I think those are a lot more palatable, not just to this administration, but also to a lot of people in Congress as well. And I think you still have kind of the golden ticket that the Obama administration really pushed on in order to get trade agreements through Congress. I think in this case, there is a decent amount of sentiment within Congress in which if you can frame something as the United States is competing in China, 
you will get a lot of Republicans on board with it. And I think you can also get a few Democrats on board with that initiative as well, especially when it comes to trade. But you also have this broader call from some places, especially in water Democrats um, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, in which they are interested in pursuing things like small digital trade agreements. So again, just basing it off of what we saw with the US and Japan during the Trump administration, I think that's probably what we're going to see continuing during this administration as well, and especially with this Congress. Oh, excellent. Thanks so much. I, just on the issue of the TPP, I know it's a question from uh, Michael Goodman in, in the uh, discussion, which is, are Australian unions opposed to the TPP as the American counterparts are? Um, yes, this has been a controversial issue. It's, and, and, and in some respects, Australian trade policy mirrors the US trade policy, only that our legislative processes for ratification through Congress are different. Um, we are getting a number of really great questions turn up in the audience Q&A, which I'll pick to in a second, but just for one more framing question, and I'll throw this one to Darren. And it's really about the scale of action that we're talking about here. Um, your report uh, takes a bilateral frame in the context of the Australia-US relationship and the alliance. And you guys make a compelling argument as to why that's really the starting point for some of these activities. Uh, developing an understanding around these issues. So building consensus around identification, like how do we define what trade coercion is? It's not just a routine trade thing. Making, um, make, perhaps making Osmin a three plus three, setting up working groups between the two countries. And that makes sense because the political equity between Australia and the US is there for that at the moment. You know, but obviously also that the ambition is for this to be larger. It's a bigger problem than the US and Australia can solve bilaterally on our own, it is global in scale. And your report certainly talks about, you know, options for taking some of those working groups or other discussions. And once there's a foundation at a bilateral level, you know, probably not multilateralizing them, but mini-lateralizing them to this, you know, great term that we've now invented in the last few years called like-minded partners. Um, so my question to you is, what does that like-minded partner group possibly look like? So who's in? Who And how could Australia and the US appeal to a greater group of countries, particularly some in the region that maybe if you're Korea or Singapore, you might get the agenda, but also there is this uh, shadow of China casting over the region. You need to be very careful about how you position yourself in some of these geoeconomic battlefronts. Yeah, absolutely. That's a real challenge. And, and, and compounding the challenge um, is the fact, as many have pointed out, that for a given trade barrier that uh, that imposes costs on Australian exporters, there's someone who usually else who benefits. Often that's been United States coal exporters or, or wine exporters. So even within the bilateral relationship, you have a challenge there of, well, the, the, you know, the American um, administration is going to be reluctant to undermine, you know, benefits to its own, its own businesses. Um, and so, look, I think, look, Australia, Australia's actually done a pretty good job of building at least in principle support. You know, you've seen the UK leader, the French leader, the Japanese leader, um, even the Singaporeans, you could argue that the joint statement that we had from there um, with them a few weeks ago had, had uh, uh, shadows of this in there. So I think there is a recognition, at least behind closed doors, that this is concerning behavior. The question is, well, at what point can you take it public and, 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 and be willing to expose yourself to the political pushback you'll get, whether it's from your own domestic constituencies or from China or other countries who who don't like you've done that you've done this that's a long slow process i think it'll be easier to do with other sort of um, rich world democracies to begin with those countries i've already mentioned um the region of course though is is the key swing state here without their support i don't think we're going to get 
traction. So what's in my mind, how do I imagine the, the Singapore's and the Koreas of the world would join on? I think it's a world where one, there is an explicit, clear and reasonable framework that's being developed that is not being used as a protectionist club, but is being used as a careful response to what we see as being bad behavior and a measured um, effort to mitigate risks in supply chains. And then two, probably it comes from further belligerent activity from Beijing. If, if, if China continues on a path of wielding these, wielding these um, economic weapons um, in ways that are seen as illegitimate and damaging to the rules-based order, then I think that can build the political will inside the region as well as around the world to sign on to this kind of measure. But we're obviously not there right now, but that's how we see the pathway in the medium term. Thanks very much, Darren. Look, I'll, let's move on to the audience Q&A at the moment. And there's actually a really good question here that transitions very nicely from that. Um, first one I've got is from Mark Soyers, who um, remarks that, you know, some of these proposals are very sensible, which begs the question that what might stand in the way of some of them being implemented? Um, I, look, it's a really great opportunity for us in Australia, particularly those of us in Perth who are cut off from the rest of the country, let alone the world at the moment, you know, to get these diversity views, particularly uh, Zach and Ashley in the, in the US. Um, if, if I could just go around the group quick, quickly, like what, what is the political challenges to being able to put some in place? And what, what would we need to do on the home front to be able to enact some of your agenda somewhat uh, sooner than later? Um, probably I'll start with Zach then, Ashley, and finish up with Darren. Well, I'll give you one that I, I hate to admit is, is very bureaucratic, but I think is actually a, a really important one, which is... Um, Look, we have an Osman meeting, which I think a lot of people think is very effective, right? So if you're the Department of State or Department of Defense, you know, the Osman meeting is really critical uh, for how we work on the alliance. And I think there's some concern that you don't necessarily want to water down these meetings by adding more people. And, oh, by the way, it's already hard to schedule four principles, you know, try adding two more and see how difficult that gets. So there are some really good arguments against some of what we've proposed. I, I think from our perspective, though, the challenge is if we keep doing what we've been doing, we're still not gonna have real concrete answers to the kind of pressure that we've been seeing. So we have to do something different, even if it's difficult, even if it requires breaking a little bit of China. But, but there are real bureaucratic issues, I think both in Washington and in Canberra that, that lead officials to be nervous about some of these kinds of ideas, not because they necessarily oppose the ideas, but because they don't want to damage the existing infrastructure that handles other kinds of alliance issues. So that's that's one I'll put on the table. Uh, hand it hand, hand it back to you, Jeff, because I, I know there are others that Ashley and Darren are going to raise. Uh, I'll, look, I'll go, I'll go to Ashley next, and, and certainly you've you've commented on some of the ways that some of these issues have to be managed across the aisle um, in in the US. So what what's what would be the appetite amongst decision makers in DC for some of these initiatives right now? That was going to be one of my answers. There are just other issues on the table right now in which uh, congressional leaders and also the administration have to deal with. Uh, on the administration side, there, obviously there's still COVID that you have to deal with. Uh, and in Congress right now, you're still focusing on the infrastructure bill. Um, and fortunately, during the summer, um, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which has some of the elements that, you know, that we do talk about in a report, is able to pass the Senate, but it wasn't able to pass the House. Um, NDAA season is coming up, which means that there's probably going to be parts of um, use that's going to be broken up and put in, uh, put in as amendments as well. 
Uh, but I would say another big issue that um, that probably prevents, some, especially some of our more forward-leaning uh, recommendations from being put in, is the creation of guardrails. Um, I think we can all agree that that a lot of our a lot of our recommendations and what we would perceive as you know responsible and moderate. White Houses and administrations and Congresses, they would implement a lot of our recommendations the way that we all imagine them to. But I think in the hands of, let's say, another administration, other members of Congress, there's the possibility that they take some of these recommendations, so they take some of the mechanisms and they go wild with them. And that would lead to a lot of the unintended consequences that we don't want um, to, come out of our, to come out of our report and to come out of our recommendations. Oh, excellent, thanks. Darren, for an Australian perspective. What's so interesting about what Australia is going through right now is that it's not, I haven't gotten a real clear sense from the government of what we would even want, you know, another partner to do. Like we appreciate the support, like we like the solidarity, but we're obviously very reluctant to escalate. You know, we don't want to, you know, to inflame tensions even, even further. And if you look at countries that have navigated economic coercion in the past, the successful model has essentially been to sort of just be quiet and, and just watch tensions melt away, often with some face-saving political agreement that doesn't have a lot of substance to it, but nevertheless allows everyone to kind of, you know, to claim some kind of face-saving outcome. So we're in a situation where we're, we're, we're resilient in what we're, you know, resolute in, in, in not giving in on the issues of political dispute. Um, we know that we need to diversify to lower some of those losses. But beyond that, you know, I don't think we're really sure yet what we want. And so I think part of the logic of our report is to say, okay, well, there's a lot we can talk about to start with. Um, we can get this on the agenda in a more formal way um, as a way, as a first step before we actually do anything concrete. Because I think we'd be very, we certainly don't want, you know, the Biden administration to, to levy retaliatory tariffs against China, because of course that's then risk blowing up the entire system. And to take Ashley's point, could be used in all sorts of ways uh, that damage our interests in the short and long you know, in the long long term. So, you know, I think you know, this is part of the policy challenge when you've got a very large country like China doing these kinds of things to Australia. We have to manage the relationship with them as well as try and build a coalition um, in, in, in trying to set some ground rules in this general area. So I think this is why we're, we're quite modest in what we're proposing, but simply getting that conversation started in a formal way is a reasonable place to start that can be politically acceptable to, to the Australian government. Excellent. Thanks, Darren. I'm going to move to another question for our audience from Terry Butler, who asks about the, uh, you, you guys talk in your reports about both formal trade sanctions, but also informal trade sanctions and how we could deal with that. Um, aware that there's a bit a large American audience in here, let me give you just one example, and it's about rock lobsters. Um, Australian rock lobsters have been effectively banned from the Chinese market, which was their number one export market. 94% of that trade was going there. Um, but the way that this has been done has been done in almost what, you know, military strategists would call a grey zone tactic, in that Australian lobsters were sent to Shanghai and the customs inspector just didn't bother to go out and sign off on the inspect on the shipment until, unfortunately, from an animal welfare point of view, all the animals had died. Um, and so then other Australian companies will say, well, I don't want to send my lobsters up there and lose that shipment, so we, we just won't ship any further. And this is a really concrete example of how I think this agenda with geoeconomics has changed. It's not just you put a tariff on me and we're going to go to Geneva to argue about whether it should be 5%. But sometime a lot of this stuff is operating in these grey zone informal areas. And that's even more challenging than what we might have dealt with in the past. So Terry's question is, is that when you guys say, well, we need an attribution mechanism, and that's clearly something that's needed in a case like uh, our lobster problem here, um, 
how do we actually do do it? Do we have to say this was being done specifically Mm -hmm. for the purposes of coercion or do we just say the effect was coercive? Do we have to actually, when we're attributing, go to intent or just outcome? Um, that's a very challenging question. I'll open it to anyone who wants to have a crack. I, Darren's smiling, so I think he's probably got a view on this one. <laughs> but uh, Ashley and Zach, I'll bring you back in once Darren's told us what he thinks about lobsters. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly thought about it. Uh, you know, once upon a time in my career, I was a lawyer, and so this is really a legal question. How would you construct a, le- you know, a legal infrastructure to deal with this kind of, of, of case? And here's the idea I've had, which I've, I've, I've put to various governments in the past, which is, if in this case you've got the you know the improper use of law and regulatory power um, by an official or you know, by someone who's acting um, in this case in the, on the Chinese government side, and we do have an entire body of, of law called administrative law which deals with governments using their legal authority in improper ways. And so what I can imagine in this attribution mechanism, and I, I do wonder what the EU is constructing themselves because I, I think this could be the kind of place where they are going at the moment. Um, the, the mechanism I imagine is that an Australian company is able to make a, a very basic sort of what we would say a prima facie first instance case that something is wrong, that they are that into an Australian quasi-judicial body uh, um, and that they are suffering losses as a result. At which point, in a legal sense, the burden of proof, as they say, shifts to the respondent side. So we would invite you know, the Chinese government or whoever the relevant actor is to explain to us why this is you know, a legitimate action. Now, of course, we have a mechanism, something like this in the WTO, but as, of course, you, know, you and others have written, Jeff, it's a very slow, long process mechanism that is already hampered by um, the, the efforts of the Trump administration. And so you're looking to build something faster, more nimble, but that let yet in critically preserves an open and transparent mechanism. So here it will be a legal process where everyone is invited to respond, but then a finding could be made that losses are being suffered. I don't know if you would necessarily need to attribute coercive intent, but just improper actions by the government that would then potentially give the Australian government options, for example, to compensate its own um, its own uh, uh, exporters, and then multilaterally over the longer term for other governments to buy into and support statements of coercion attribution that yes this is it happened it is improper and we support you know the 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 victim in this case if it was australia excellent Uh, i don't know if if zach or actually wanted to have some views on this uh, complicated matter as well or Oh, good. No worries. Look, conscious that we're coming towards the end of the time, I did want to wrap around by having a, asking a question to everyone on the panel before we wrap up. And I'd like to pose a, a, a bit of a challenging and interesting question for you guys, which is for those of us in the policy space, whether think tank or academia, we often write reports, as you guys have here, you know, laying out a case for a credible set of policy actions that governments could take to deal with a problem and mapping out what the benefits of that could be. And, you know, we've really heard um, in some of this discussion the benefits of having that discussion between Australia in the US, just the talking about these attribution identification mechanisms, and maybe, as Zach said, some of the more forward-leaning stuff moving down around coordinated action. But there's another way to think about this, which is the political imperative, and that what is the cost of inaction? Um, you know, we've, uh, we've particularly heard that there are challenges for this bureaucratic, political, geopolitical on, on both the Australia, US, and indeed other regional partners' sides. Um, and so to create a kind of sense for what's this what I'd, I'd like to just go through you all. I'll start with uh, um, Ashley and then do Darren and finish with Zach. What happens if we don't do anything about these issues? 
what's the what, what's the cost of non-action here? Um, and and so I think that really helps us think about what building an imperative around some of the things you guys are arguing for. I'll start with Ashley. Thanks. That's a fantastic question. I think right now we're seeing what the consequences are of political inaction, in which China has been has been has done economic coercion for quite a while now. Right? They started in. And I guess in our most recent history, they started in 2010, 2011 with a rare earth, with a rare earth elements case against Japan. And since then, what actually have we done? What has the United States, what has, Japan, what has Australia, what have other countries done? And the answer to that is not much. You had uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders say it was a really a nonsense in the White House. And you also had some other statements here and there. But because of relative inaction, China has become even more aggressive, even more bolder in, the tar in who it's targeting and what it's targeting. Um, before it started off with primarily smaller countries in the region or countries that thought they could bully. But then as we saw in 2019, 2020, they started going after large US uh, organizations like the NBA, in which we didn't think that they would go there before. And since then they've sanctioned uh, Trump former Trump administration officials as well and members of Congress. So I think we're seeing the consequences in which China has become a lot bolder in its uses of course of economic measures and we need to do something. Excellent, thanks Ashley. And I think as, as you said in the report, this cuts to issues of deterrence as well, right? Yeah. Um, Darren, uh, consequences of inaction. To take a different direction, you know, what we're seeing from China is it's, you know, it, it, like much of what the Trump administration does is, you know, flies in the face of the rules-based economic order. And so the risk if we do nothing here is, is further economic closure. Um, you know, both from China cutting off its trade relationships and other and other countries adjusting, but then also countries proactively using um, these kinds of measures as excuses to to engage in their own forms of protectionism um, or at least some kind of sort of economic discrimination. Um, and it, it, it snowballs, right, as we saw in the 1930s. So I think that's there's a bigger picture here and thinking about not um, just as through the lens of China exercising power, but in terms of the entire system, which sustains such a, you know, a, a prosperous, um, you know, sort of form of a globalization is also a worthy frame to think about these challenges. Excellent. Um, and, and Zach, to finish us off for the session. It's such a hard question, but I think we have a good test case of some of the risks if we don't stand from an American perspective by our key allies and partners. And the case I would look at is South Korea. So, uh, you know, roughly five years ago, there was an economic dispute between China and South Korea. It was caused in part by uh, the South Korean government agreeing to uh, take a missile defense system uh, that the U.S. and South Korea had negotiated and, and put it into South Korea to defend, defend against North Korean ballistic missiles. Um, the Chinese government was upset about that and took a whole variety of economic actions against uh, South Korea, including against South Korean businesses. Um, again, informal, much as you've said, you know, fire code violations, shutting down department stores in large numbers all at once, uh, these sorts of things. And at the end of the day, I have often heard from friends in Seoul that the feeling there is that the United States just didn't do anything, that we asked our friends in South Korea to help us on a military challenge that was critical for the alliance, that China pushed back not against the United States, but against South Korea. And that at the end of the day, South Korea therefore expected the United States not to 
um, completely compensate the South Korean businesses that had been affected, but to have some show of support. And the fact that that wasn't there, I think really has undermined trust in the US-South Korea alliance. It's not something we can't get over, but it's a hurdle. And it's something I hear about very frequently from South Korean friends when we talk about trying to do additional things together. They'll often say, well, you know, look, in 2016, um, when we were under pressure, where were you then? And what I worry about is that now the United States at very senior levels, the Secretary of State, the White House's lead on Asia have promised that we're going to stand by Australia. And at some point there are gonna be questions asked about what that means in concrete terms. And I think we have to have a better answer today than we had five years ago. So, so I think that's the comparison case, unfortunately. And it's why in my view, and I'm so happy the US Studies Center has you know, let us do this kind of work and supported it. And, and Jeff, you've done so much great work on this. We have to now move from talking about this problem to actually taking action. Um, and I think that's that's hopefully what we'll see at Osman in, in roughly 10 days. And it's definitely what, what we're trying to work towards. Excellent. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Zach. Um, just to finish off our session, um, I'll just probably comment on it is interesting. We've recently had the 70th anniversary of the Australia-US ANZUS Alliance. Um, Osmin coming up soon, which is, uh, as, as my CEO Gordon Flake said, you need to mark the, the significance of a, an official meeting by the personal efforts that the, those who attend have to go to. And the Australian Foreign and Defence Minister will need to quarantine for two weeks on arrival and return home for this. So it really, um, uh, political leaders are putting their bodies on the line in a way that they haven't in the past. But it is interesting that for much of the history of that relationship, the popular perception is that it's a military alliance, a security relationship, and that Osmins are there to discuss stuff painted grey. Um, I think it's really useful that this report will be coming out at the moment to actually bring some of these economic parts up into that agenda. Think about maybe going to three plus three if the scheduling doesn't make it a nightmare. Um, and actually really, this what this report demonstrates, that there is far more connection and far more equity in the Australia-US relationship than the Security Alliance and the frame on that really focuses. So hopefully that will uh, create a broader discussion for Osmin next week. This has been a real pleasure for me. And thank you everyone um, who's who's come at various times of the day, depending on where the world, around the world you are. I hope you've enjoyed as well. I'll just hand back to Simon Jackman, CEO of the US Study Center to uh, finish up our session and um, thank the speakers. Thanks so much, Jeff, and, and, and thanks to you. Um, we're so pleased um, to be able to bring you not just today's webinar, but but this um, but this report by by um, as I look at them on my screen, Ashley, Zach, and and, and Darren. Um, we um, you you can't. I think as I think Jeff stated it really well. For us, our charge is to is to be Australia's leading institution on all things to do with the U.S. and all things to do with Australia's relationship with the U.S. and and that means you've got to be in this space. Um, you've got to be uh, writing about or imagining how geoeconomics works into the Alliance agenda. And, and for that reason, um, moving with haste on that, we, we reached out to Darren, uh, to Zach and to Ashley uh, for, for, for a, a, a substantive, but critically timely piece of research. And, and they delivered on, on both of those uh, KPIs, um, <laughs> substance and, and timeliness, um, this report going live uh, just in time for Osmin. Uh, I, I, we will see. Um, I, my, my own, the, the last question I'll leave everybody with, and I'm, it's not a question to be answered, it's a rhetorical question, but 
Uh, do, do the events of recent weeks, uh, the sort of a lot of the criticism of the US and, and hand-wringing about what it means for uh, the US's uh, um, um, stance with respect to allies that, might, that are in play on the back of the Af imagery coming out of Afghanistan. Does actually hand Australian um, principles a, a slightly stronger set of cards than they might have had, um, say, a month or two ago, uh, and, and this, this ardent desire that the, the, the talk and the, and the tweets and the sentiment around supporting Australia and the geoeconomics uh, battle space, as it were, uh, translates into action. And, and um, we'll see. We'll, we'll see, we'll see what, what comes of um, the communique um, um, next week.